0: Musical, linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. As you already know, uh, at least if you've been with me here in the Salon for a while... One of the things that I'm trying to do with these podcasts, in addition to helping to pass along information about psychedelic medicines and the altered states of consciousness that they provoke, well, in addition to that, I also like to collect some of the stories about how these explorers of realms yet unknown have found their paths, their destiny, if you will. And today we're going to be treated to a conversation with a man who has spent his adult life living and working in the jungle with healers and their medicines. What is so unusual about Jonathan Miller-Weisberger's story is that he didn't just stay in one location for a few months to study rainforest medicine. He spent many years living with each of several different indigenous rainforest cultures, learning their ways and getting to know them on a personal level. About 19 years ago, Jonathan began the development of what today is the Ocean Forest Eco Lodge in Costa Rica. And he's here to tell us about the life journey that's carried him through some fascinating times, and he will bring us up to date about the work he's doing with various projects among indigenous people, as well as about the retreats that he hosts at the Eco Lodge. Now, here's a recording of a live salon that took place three weeks ago. Uh, Jonathan, welcome, and uh, uh, do, do I call you Jonathan or Sparrow?
1: Well, either works really uh an old name but sparrow's my uh official name and jonathan's my spiritual name
0: oh okay the the reason i ask is that am i correct in in saying that your mother's first name was delilah dahlia dahlia okay i I had i was close so so my wife and i met your mother in uh uh, 1999 at the Ayahuasca conference in San Francisco. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was really the reason it's it's memorable for a lot of reasons. Of course, we enjoyed uh, you know meeting your mother, and she was uh, so enthusiastic about the center that uh, you all were building down there. Uh, I believe in Costa Rica, right? And and she 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 kept telling us, she said, "Oh, I wish my son was here so he could meet all of you and oh. and you know all of these years, I thought, well, you know there is an opportunity missed, but here we're meeting online anyhow, so uh welcome, Jonathan
1: oh, thank you so much, Lorenzo. I really appreciate you recalling that memoir with my- mother that's awesome
0: yeah she she's an amazing woman that yeah that uh so uh, let me let me do this uh let's start out, and I'm going to." put up on the screen for the people who are here, and you might be able to see this uh, on on your computer too, I'm going to put up on the screen the uh, website, your website for Ocean Forest, uh, and and is that, there is, we that, are, yeah. is that where you were uh, working when we first met your mother at the conference?
1: Yes, correct, that's the place, we've been there 20 years now, and it's uh, quite amazing, it says where the spark where the Majesty of the Rainforest meets the sparkling Pacific Ocean. Um there we are on that beautiful beach. It's a mile long Paradise Beach. Uh we, we uh it's the Pacific Ocean there. This is South Pacific, Costa Rica. Our ethnobotanical gardens are growing in quite robust. Now that's the flower of the Yahe or the ayahuasca vine and flowered it flowers marvelously there during this onset of the dry season in december and january and into Febu- february as well uh there's our lodge there in the ocean that ridge up behind is all pure beautiful gallery rainforest huge trees abundant wildlife it's this remarkable place so so tell us tell us
0: about you know uh, eventually uh, here tonight i'd like to uh, talk about some of your retreats and and uh your book of course but uh let's let's uh for, let's start out. How did how did this all come about? I mean, this is a really <laughs> substantial thing that's been going on for a long time, uh, and and uh, you know I've known about it for twenty years now. Uh, how did how did you all get this thing going? Uh, what was the inspiration, and what's what's your background actually?
1: I appreciate that. Well, I was raised in Ecuador, in the country of Ecuador, and in 1985 I, I moved to the United States, graduated from Berkeley High School went on to study at Humboldt State University. And at Humboldt State, it wasn't long later, a series of coincidental happenings occurred um, that I turned out to meet a cousin of mine. We didn't know we were cousins until we started working together. And he was um, very devoted to the cause of, of spreading awareness on campus about what was happening in the rainforest. And he had these petitions going and he recruited me quickly to sign petitions. And and then one thing led to another. We got involved in the, in this, uh, situations happening locally with the ancient redwood forest. And I ended up becoming a guide out to the headwaters forest, uh, before redwood summer. And this was the late, uh, basically late 80s. And then in 1990, through a professor at Humboldt State, he, he had a, there was a student prior to me. I studied environmental journalism with his professor, and he had uh, gone to Ecuador to start this biological reserve down there. And I got really interested because I was raised in Ecuador. I'd been to the rainforest a few times in my youth, but I was raised in the mountains. And uh, it was fascinating to me. And so we got in touch, and one thing led to another. I took a year leave of absence. That turned into 10 years. (laughs) It was just so fascinating down in in the Amazon. And, you know, I got involved in all these projects. I uh, ended up working on the that's basically the content of my book Rainforest Medicine Preserving Indigenous Science and Biological Diversity in the Upper Amazon in that 10 year period I was able to work on quite a, a, a number of really important historical projects um, including the, the physical demarcation of the Waurani Indian Territory and in brief they basically received uh, one third of their ancestral homelands um, legalized, and, uh, and there was an oil penetration we were coming down from the, you know, the, the uh, town of, of Coca, Francisco de Oriana, going south. And their territory had a canyon of colonization along both sides of the of this oil road and all kinds of colonization, huge global problems. And so our work was, and it was masterminded by an Australian man, by Douglas Ferguson, who had formed an organization in Aust- from Australia. It's a whole other story how he got there, but he masterminded the project. I was a volunteer on that, and it was a fascinating—I mean, absolutely eye-opening, illusion-shattering, you know, reality-shattering and reconstructing experience. Those four years working with Warani in the and,
0: and what years? What years were these? Now that was 1990
1: to 1994. Quite a ways ago now, but those are indelible experiences. I wrote about that in my book. At the same time, uh, other situations opened up, and I began working on the demarcation of the Napo Galeras, and I was influential in in assisting, facilitating um, this sacred mountain called Napo Galeras that has amazing legends. The whole book kind of leads up to Chapter 8, which is about the protection of the Napo Galeras, isolated limestone massif that's considered to be a, a sacred mountain by three regional indigenous groups. And we were influential in, in um, allowing that area to be included into a new national park that was being created. I just finished a podcast with a gentleman named Anka from uh, Southern California. He has a blog called um, Hybrid Culture, so that he was specifically, had read my book, very interested about that project in Galeras, and we spoke quite at length. That should be coming out pretty soon. Um, I was teeter-tottering after those two projects concluded going back to school, but then a whole new project opened up with a friend of mine, and I was shuffled off to the Sequoia Territory in 1995, which went into a whole other five years. And that was a really fantastic experience because I became the student of an accomplished master of the realities of the Yahé, of the secret plant medicine science of Yahé. And um, I was there working with the Sequoias primarily to be a facilitator of cultural revalidation, and I ended up publishing several books for the Sequoia schools. One was called Health and Life, about a Sequoia ethnobotany, another with a Sequoia school teacher about the cultural migrations of the Sequoia people, and then another Cosmology Wall Calendar. We would organize gatherings amongst the elders and youth, and that led to these exodus-style voyages to help assist them in recuperating their ancestral territory on the peruvian Ecuadorian border. So those five years were just fantastic, and then on top of that, intermixed with all all many ceremonies with the sacred plant medicine of Yahé with Don Cesario Piaguaje, and many other Sequoia elders that would come along. Um, and so, basically, in the year two thousand, our work came to a closure there, and a strange kind of fluke of incidences occurred, and. The, you know, life's opportunities brought me to Costa Rica. Um, in particular, Ecuador was undergoing a very challenging time. It's, it still is in some regards. It stabilized itself, but the country was being dollarized. There was massive inflation. Um, I was working at a Chinese doctor's academy. The town I was living with, Baños, was, the volcano started erupting. The town was evacuated, so I left back to Quito. I was working with this Chinese doctor. Who I met in the park. My friend said that other oh, guy teaching Chi- uh, Tai Chi in the park. We started soon, he wasn't long before she, you know he had me as a student. And all, all those years in the Amazon, um, you know, not be, be with indigenous elders that you know don't the Guaranis don't speak any Spanish whatsoever. The you don't know, society the Sequoia somewhat, but not much. Um, so you learn to communicate on, on an energy level and with uh. Dr. Huang, Huang chang it wasn't it, it, he caught on quick that I could, you know, we 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 got along pretty well. That led to a, a year and a half of studying Tai Chi, and Kung Fu, traditional Chinese medicine. It was fascinating. But at that time, Ecuador was undergoing a really drastic transition economically, um, similar to maybe what the United States went through during the Great Depression. Many of the banks just closed outright, closed and it was really intense and, um, to see like all the kinds of patients that would come to his clinic 30, 40 a day they would start complaining about you know like elder people with no like their retirements just vanished before their eyes and you know people the banks simply closed and don't no get their money and he would come out and scream at everybody, here you don't come to complain. Here you come to receive the energy. And he'd, he'd bust out his two-stringed erhu, this violin, and just wail on the violin, the most soulful music. And you'd have all these folks of different ages, a lot of elder people open their hands and receive the energy. It's a really powerful experience. But at that, my great-uncle died, who was my, uh, we could say, cultural hero. He, he brought my family, my grandparents, from Poland right before the Second World War to Panama and some of my p- family came in the 1940s to Ecuador as well and they founded a clinic a hospital there my grandpa great uh, great uncle was a doctor and um, basically he passed away so we went to Panama and uh, for that he was a g- great age amazing human being Isaac Kresch he was a renowned boxing manager in Panama he, he trained five world champions and lightweight champion box- mm-hmm. boxers of the world yeah hardcore boxing manager and uh, he was very generous, too, and he helped a lot of people. He really installed in me the culture of service. And I'd always go visit him from a young age. But when I was in Panama, a friend of mine from Ecuador was studying in university in Costa Rica. Just out of free coincidence, had her vacation time, and I still had some time on my ticket. And I'd always wanted to visit the Osa Peninsula, um, mainly as a botanist. You know, the, it always fascinated me with the rain, and I love the ocean as well, where the rainforest meets the ocean. And sure enough, she wanted to do this 10-day trek across the Osa Peninsula, and it just aligned perfectly for me to meet her. So I went up into Panama. We met in southern Costa Rica, hiked 10 days through the through the Corcovado National Park up the coast, um, camping along the way and had amazing encounters with wildlife. Mm-hmm. And when we got to this beach just out of the park, I couldn't believe this area was not part of the park. Because in many regards, the park is very wild. But this p- place, our beach felt so like people-friendly, a kind of a, a people-friendly wilderness. And she had to get back to her classes. I still had some time on my ticket. And I met this beautiful elder named Don Victorio, Villareal, Villareal. I have to give him all the honors. His name in translation to English says, victory from the real village, real village. So Patricia, my friend, left back to her studies. I was kind of sad, wondering what to do. There was this happy old old-timer, and we started talking. One thing led to another. He invited me to his house. Turns out he's a herbologist. So we shared a lot of wisdom with the plants together. And I chopped him a big pile of firewood. And he asked me, he said, you're not interested in purchasing some land here in this area? And I said, you know, if it was worthy, you got to watch what you say for if I must bow down somewhere. Uh, that beach down there was pretty remarkable. I was like, oh, I happen to know a family that has a little piece of property down there he brought me down, and they were waiting on some woman from California that was like had committed to them six months ago, never came back. And so at first they said, "No, you know, it's we already committed to someone." But I camped there because it was such a beautiful location. This is where your
0: your your site is now. Is where, where you
1: the, where the spot is. Yeah, the saga of how we got there, uh worthy of uh, you know, sharing that adventure. And anyway, so basically, the family came and said, "No, we were thinking about this year. And, you know, we really like you." And um, these women that we had committed to, it's been six months, they were supposed to come six months ago, it's like so we you know, figured if you're interested, and then suddenly it was like, oh my God, I was like, if I'm interested at first, it was kind of like a relief, there was like, no, it's already committed, so I'll just camp out for five days, go back to Ecuador. And then so when they said that to me, I just like, like, a, like an explosion of ideas, just like, because I love Ecuador, but also like, you know, basically 10 years in the Amazon and like, you know, most of that time background level and drinking crazy amounts of very stiff Yahe brews with my old master. It was like, and seeing, you know, the advancements of colonialism. And it was, it's, it's for someone who's sensitive, it's difficult to witness all that. And somehow I managed to, you know, like forge through it all, not like lose my mind, but then to come to a place like Costa Rica, where everything, you know, it was a whole different story. There's no mining and it's like, everyone's like, you know, like a natural sense of like, Conservation ethics amongst the locals, tons of animals everywhere it just seemed like there 's like the golden next level opportunity. I had a lodge that had worked with uh, the Sequoias, but um that whole area in the northern ecuador Amazon be- became declared a red zone for tourism because of the uh, planned colombia uh, the u s a you know aid to Colombia to combat the narco movement uh, that northern Ecuador and Amazon province became very dangerous and I had been in meetings with, like, th- throughout those years working in conservation Ecuador I had Seen a lot of things. That's, you know, the book is about that. It doesn't even talk about Costa Rica. And at the end of the book, it says, you know, we have our lodge there. But one of the things that I, I remember clearly being in was a meeting with many different indigenous representatives and some generals from the Ecuadorian army too. And they admitted that the biggest mistake they'd made, one of them, was opening the roads up from Colombia down into Ecuador. And it's just been really, you know, used mainly by the subversive movements. They're very aggressive, very violent. And those towns in the northern Ecuador, Amazon until Recently, in the past like ten, six, eight, eight, you know five to ten years, they've been cleaned up a lot. but um the times that I visited they were like just, you know the, as like dirty and slimy as like a town can get. And um, La Correa, one of the things he did is had made the oil companies you know reinvest a lot of the third years of back taxes that they never paid. He got it off of them. Threatened to nationalize the companies, you know, oil if they if they didn't do that. And reinvested all this money into these like remote like oil frontier towns and made them into quite nice towns. And one of the things they did was clean up this gang warfare that was happening there. That had to do a lot mainly people like you know who knew too much were like involved with the subversive movement. But literally it would. You know, I saw an article in the paper once, it cost $20 to hire an assassin in Shushu but But um, that's what a life is worth. But then, like, you know, the last tour I did out there, someone was shot at the hotel an hour after we left. So it just. You know, it just seemed too intense. All that you've definitely, you know, and, um, and so this opportunity, Costa Rica, opened up, and I, and, um, I just needed a sign. I, you know, like I'm, I feel like you know the best sign is like a calm and simple life, but I was like I had to ask the Great Spirit for a sign on this one. So I had like a few days left. I had to leave back to Ecuador on my ticket. So I went up to the top of the hill with the rainforest behind and the beautiful, sparkling ocean in front. I meditated and asked the Great Spirit for a sign. In that moment, I heard like the squawking of macaws, and I looked up, and right above me were eight scarlet macaws in a perfect plus sign, in, two, in four pairs, and that was enough of a sign, like a plus of macaws. And then it still wasn't enough of a sign actually, because as I was leaving the family, I said, ah, "I don't know, we're going to come up with the money," and, and uh, basically I just said, "Like you know, I don't think I can do this." But as I was leaving, as I was walking out of there, I started to cry. And I was like, I was like, oh, I blew it. I should have just told him. I'll just do it. When am I coming back? Probably never. When I got to Palma Norte, I got on the bus to go back to Panama. This guy asked me, hey, you're not going to mention this hotel down the beach? He thought I was going to this hotel. I was like, no, no, I'm actually leaving. But the hotel owners, I made friends with him while, while I was there. And I was like, you don't know. So-and-so. And he was like, oh, yeah, I know. I was like, you won't have to hand this note for me. He was like, Of course. So I scribbled a note for my friend Pincho to pass on to the to the neighbor family that was going to you know offer me this property, and sure enough, they got the note. I had no communication with them on cell phone or anything. And six months later, I, I returned to see if indeed you know it was still available. And sure enough, they had got the note and they waited for me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, Wow! Yeah, and there we are today, thanks to my great uncle and. And uh a lot of hard work, and we we got the property and started building it up, and one, one thing led to another, and and uh yeah, we channeled all that energy from you know, accumulated over ten years in the Amazon into that project, and we have a gorgeous, beautiful center now. It's an ethnobotanical gardens that are filling in quite remarkably. We have hundreds of species of ethnobotanical plants in a permaculture project. And
0: Ted rooms. Uh, now you you've been
1: working on this one site here for like twenty years now. Yes, I've been focused, living about nine months a year there. Still sustaining projects in Ecuador, though, as well.
0: Now, how how did how did you finally get a get a, a stake in the ground and get started to where now you you actually have retreats that you're organizing, things like that? How did that progress over the years?
1: Well, <clears throat> the first thing we did was build a bean lodge there. And uh, it's quite a remarkable feat. It's a three-story pagoda. I don't even know how we did it. <clears throat> but uh, we had this dream, this vision. And, like, you know, halfway through, I was like, oh, my God, I blew it. I'm going to be one more dumb gringo, even though I you know, can speak fluent Spanish, basically. You know, that. like, there's a lot of failed projects in Costa Rica. People come with illusions of grandeur. And you see them scattered up the coast, you know, big projects, half done, and just being covered, eaten over by the jungle and but I think, thanks to the spirit, you know, to the to two things, the the medicine of Yahweh, and the sacred medicine of Yahweh, and also thanks to the I Ching. I um, Dr. Huang, and thank uh, to my interest in Taoism. I've always uh, I got on young to the Tao Te Ching, and uh, to the study the I Ching, the I Ching, the Book of Changes, and the Unchanging Truth, which is one of the oldest divination texts. And the I Ching always came out favorable and helped guide me through a lot of circumstances. And uh, But also through the medicine too and the people you meet and holding the ways that we learned from my good-hearted master Don Cesario. And uh, we had the first groups came camped out there. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of miracles. You know, one that I have to mention is Don Pablo Amarigo, the great visionary artist. Right. He was, uh, I became personal friends with him. I, I, didn't, I definitely at the time didn't realize how fortunate I was. I mean, I definitely, you know, honored and recognized and, you know, soaked up as much as I could. And and on my first early tours to the Sequoia Territory, he joined us on six of those trips. Wow. I only only
0: met him one time, but he was so gracious. And, you know, I I didn't speak Spanish. And so he was kind and we had an interpreter and just spent a lot of time, just kind man, I found.
1: The true sage of the Amazon, one of the most humble, selfless. And I lived in his home for a month Mm. And to see how he just devoted himself to service his whole house as a school for the for teaching art and every day giving advice he was the father to many, many people, and he had a way of transmitting and inspiring people to see the value of the tradition of their heritage and culture and lift it up through his you know his his way that he knew which was through art right. and in my book, I talk about don Pablo there was one moment where where we were like you know slim slim pickings, you know and the uh, you know had to get through the rainy season and I had, I had sold that uh, for a while. I was one of his, he actually, I have a letter of permission from him to represent him. And I would sell his art. And uh, we sold them cheap in those days, in the early days. I, I regret not having bought a bunch myself, but like a thousand, five hundred dollars. Now they go for like twenty, forty, or even more, eighty. Who knows? People, have, I guess, can right. ask if they want now that he's deceased. But I've seen him on the internet for like sixty thousand.
0: I, I don't know if you can see the screen, but I've, uh, put your website up here that has some photos of your lodge here's the beach uh this must be a scene from above uh here is a patio with a table this is spectacularly beautiful jonathan you guys wow what a bunch of that's a lot of work uh-huh. when it this that i am very impressed with uh what you've done and and you know it it can't have been easy to do yeah. all that
1: <laughs> so, yeah.
0: so let me ask you, uh, yeah. and we'll we'll talk a little bit about uh, your your, uh, oh, no, your like book here. Yeah. But I, you you brought something up that I only yeah. have a, a vague understanding of. This is the difference between and ayahuasca. Can you can you tell us more about that?
1: Much pleasure, Lorenzo. Um. On my website, I have a, another website for the book. It's called ReinforcedMedicine.net. dot net. There's a part there says the tradition, and uh, I put together a home spun kind of funky uh, video documentary about the differences between Ayahuasca and Yahuin that I encourage people to look at. But there there are several differences and. And also in the book I say and I, I came to understand that basically each indigenous culture, their use of the sacred plant medicine of ayahuasca, is an indigenous science. Yeah, there you go. As you can see there where it says the tradition up at the top.
0: And that's Pablo's uh, painting on the cover, I see. Correct.
1: The that vision is called the circulating the globe. And so each indigenous group and the way they use the sacred plant medicine is a science in and of itself. So we can deduce that there's the indigenous science of ayahuasca. Then there's the indigenous science of yahe. And um, as used amongst the Tucanoan speakers, the indigenous science of ayahuasca stems originally from the Inca, from certain esoteric groups, lions of the Inca, the Shiris, that taught the ayahuasca to the Amazonian tribes. And then we have the indigenous science of Mi'i amongst the Waurani. And uh, each group, the indigenous science of Natem, the indigenous science of Kapi, the indigenous science of Pinde. Each indigenous group that uses it has its own indigenous science. I can share with you some of the differences between the science of Ayahuasca and the science of Yahe. And in broad strokes, basically, it has to do with a few things. One of them is it the preparation method and in the admixture plants used. Also, I might note that the, the Yahé and also Ayahuasca are, are unique ancestral cultigens of the plant itself because the, the Ayahuasca vine is believed to be a house. And inside this house lives a spirit or Pinta, different spiritual energies. The def, the, the, depending on the lineage or the degree, or the caliber of the healer, or the, or the maestro, they have different spirits that inhabit these houses, different pintas that are from different realms of existence. And, um, and so the ayahuasca is, for the most part, the admixture is a plant called chakruna, which is the tree of aridis. It's, uh, rubiesi in the coffee family. And in the traditions of Yahe, the admixture that they use would be diploporus cabarana. What they call Yahé Oko, the Yahé water, and this is another vine in the same family as the ayahuasca, Malphigiesi. Ayahuasca, my dad is made syrups, is capi. Most of us know that now. And but uh so these plants, the admixtures, um, have different alkaloids in them, and. Well, some of the ayahuasca know about developers Camaran as well. They call it Chagropanga in Peru and Chalipanga. They usually just add in a little bit of leaves, not that much. And the sequoia add in quite a bit more. And only the young leaves that are reaching to the sun, also the yahé, all the bark is pounded off. And there's a reason for that. Because the bark is rich in tannins. And the tannins are, are nomadic. They make one vomit. And they're more of a purgative. So the uh, yahé traditions has a, a part that's Prior to the ceremony of the yahe they the they, the people they do a sunrise renewal ceremony and this takes place at three in the morning and the, and this is prepared in a, in a large pot and it's just the leaves of the Yahé vine and the leaves of the yahe okop vine the admixture vine with some stems as well of the woody stems of the ya, ayahuasca Yahé vine, and they boil it for only two hours. And they wake up at 3 in the morning, and the elder maestro blows on it and prepares it energetically, and then all the students drink copious gourds, like half-gallon-sized gourds, one, two. By the third, you're vomiting, and then you drink another. You vomit even more, and people you know, can drink up to five or six and vomit really good, and then it passes through the intestines, and it's a thorough cleanse. You pee at your butt, basically comes sprays out, and you get high off of that, forget it. You can... I've been nothing but a disembodied set of eyes bouncing across the room at one time. We're all just crying for the... Who knows why are even crying? And... Um, even the Master was crying that time. And... So that cleans you out thoroughly. and prepares the body for the experience of the Yahweh. Then, with the Yahweh, the objective is to drink but not to vomit, to hold it in. Because the objective of the tradition of the ceremony of Yahweh, the purpose is to meet... And to merge with the energy of the Winya Pai, the divine immortals. In order to meet the divine immortals, you have to drink very stiff yahe, and you have to very have a strong body too, it goes along with a strong work ethic too, as well. The tradition of yahe, you have to, and like basic everyday life of the Sequoias is, is, takes a lot of work, you know, always like the gardening. You know, doing agriculture or making canoes or building houses, so you have to get really strong physically to be able to hold it a lot and not go screaming, you know basically, or have to get tied up and um, and then so then so then you can see the heaven people that way, different realms of legions of the divine immortals, whereas the the traditions of ayahuasca in the past they were different in that the ayahuasqueros would go into the wilderness and do diets, dietas for several weeks or months. At lakes or at sacred spots and rivers or mountainsides and locations that were energetic locations. Like I say, lakes or maybe cliff, hillsides, where there's cliffs, special spots in the wilderness. And they do these diets sometimes not, you know, with other plants, primarily usually with different plants. And then they would drink the ayahuasca only after two months or so or a month to prove, to see if their diet was successful. And um, if not, then so the ayahuasca is more as a tool used as a tool to calibrate to see if their dieta was successful. And then, um, and then when they became healers and they were, you know, did enough graduations and diets, they, they would use ayahuasca to heal. But many, many occasions, the sick people wouldn't even drink the ayahuasca, they would just get healed by the maestro who had the contact with different spirits. Um, now, the ayahuasca traditions have changed quite a, lo- a bit to basically meet. You know, a modern setting with like people going down to the Amazon a lot on like, you know, like 10 day retreats or week long retreats or overnights at people's houses all over the place, you know, the cities, the world over. And so, um, and, peop- and so the ayahuasca tradition usually also, the ceremony of yahe, for the most part, starts at, at sunset and goes to like midnight or one in the morning and then it's over. The ayahuasqueros, at least traditionally in Peru, they'll drink one time, maybe two at the most, and then you know, Westerners that want to push it, usually try to get more in and you know, sometimes go all night, but, but most traditional ayahuasca ceremonies end at midnight. Whereas the ceremony of Yahweh, that's another difference in how the ceremony is conducted. It has to do with the energy clock. From midnight, from sunset to midnight, come out the elemental energies, and the primal energies of the spirits. But from midnight, and more close to 2, 3 in the morning till sunrise, descend the celestial spirits. So the Sequoia Ceremony of Yehef, oftentimes, will be, you know, people will start drinking right after sunset, but there'll be a long period of silence, almost all the way sometimes, and you drink two or three times, so you're really high. But its And then at two or three in the morning, the songs begin, and it's, it's amazing, because after all that silence, and you're on the medicine, and all the, they, they start singing the elders, and just the rain, the sky opens up, and, and the celestial people descend, and you know, the realities can be witnessed. Experienced through the trance of the yahe, and so basically the um accomplished ayahuasqueros they use the spirits to heal because the spirits are close by them. they can be summoned and they they can be used to heal, but the spirits have a dualistic side to them, and so they they can heal um, under the command of a well trained ayahuasqueto who's firmly established. Their relationship with the celestial spirits, the divine immortals, which means they've consecrated their virtue. But in the, some of the, a lot of these spirits, in the, when employed by people whose virtue isn't, you know, basically consecrated, they can tempt the healer to do harm. And um, in a way, it's their way of like making people focus through that. You know, people learn, and then they see that that's not going to get them anywhere. But unfortunately, damage can occur, and people get harmed. And that happens all the time. Um, the tradition, so that that's some of the differences between the traditions in the sequoia tradition they have a much more immaculate understanding of the spiritual realms and the heavenly realms and the ayahuasqueros did as well but a lot of the old school ayahuasqueros have passed and the way it's being passed along now is diluted from how it originally was in the original days the ayahuasquenos were much more strict than they are now those are some of the differences also the ikaros and the difference between the songs too the uh, melodies or the icons of the west are, are kind of more melancholic, and they, you almost they almost kind of invoke a sense of like invoking the, the spirits of the earth, whereas the sequoia and the, the western Tukanoan you know songs of the hehenye they're called the, the winiakaye calle, of the of the chanting is much more high pitched and elongated and goes sometimes all night for hours and it's a lot of, there's a call and response it's a much different frequency as well.
0: Well, that's really fascinating. You know, I've I've uh... Only kind of just uh, in my reading, you know, touched on the two subjects from time to time of being compared. And that's uh, actually the most (laughs) in-depth
1: comparison I've heard. I appreciate that, Jonathan. With much pleasure. Those things you can't learn unless you spend many years with indigenous communities.
0: Yeah, and and uh, you know, not many of us so are are uh, have what it takes like you did to uh, spend so many years doing that. And so we have to rely on uh, you know stories from you to get inspired. And hopefully, there'll be young people that hear this get get inspired to follow in your wake. You know, uh, while we're while we're here uh, right now, let's. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Anything they'd like to interject? Okay. Here, go ahead, Stanley. Um, how's living in Ecuador nowadays? Does things change with uh, how the government and everything is, or are things?
1: The Ecuador is a beautiful country. It's the heartland. The uh, I've heard that basically it's the heartland. It's a, it's a it's a beautiful country, and you know there was a recent you know basically national strike, but that's that hasn't occurred for about ten years between 1995 or the year 2000 early. You know, there was a uh, between 2005 and 2005, there was a uh, quite a bit of presidents overthrown, and and it's really amazing what happened now. And it, it's that you know a lot of these countries in Latin America are at this like basically crossroads that where the people are are you know you know basically you know, not contented with the way these imp- imposed huge mega decision making processes that affect everybody in very drastic ways, and uh, but the people. You know, mob energy sometimes brings you know, Riley situations. Of course, but it's remarkable. Like you know, they're very devoted to nonviolent civil dis- disobedience when they absolutely have to. When they feel so pressured, like what happened now with the gas prices just raised 120 percent overnight. When people like maybe make a dollar fifty a day or three four hundred dollars a month at most. That's a huge. When the gas doubles and everything, you know, the cost of living is based on gas. But the people in Ecuador, especially in the mountain region, are 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 people that are very calm and very. Uh, uh, deeply, deeply good people, and you know those countries stay together not necessarily because what the government does, but be, because of the nat- natural, integral social order that's just part of the, the of the people themselves. You know, um, those are beautiful places to live, and you know but I, I live in Ecuador part of the year, and I um, always go back there. My partner, my she's from Ecuador too. And, um, I was raised there. I love Ecuador very much. I live in Costa Rica. Costa Rica is a whole different phenomena than Ecuador. In what way? Well, for one, there's no mining in the entire country, which is an absolutely insane, amazing phenomenon that there's a country on earth that has no mining at all, anywhere in the country. Um, there's no, and they, and they have a really powerful way of working. There was a national consensus uh, many years ago, close to the year 2002, this oil company from the United States was negotiating like a concession and uh, basically they brought it up to national vote with the entire country you know had concession every sector of society was consulted it was such a landslide opposition that the government never went that way and then I think the the oil company was suing the government for like, you know, wait, you know, like slacking on like its time, like that, it, like money wasted, like waiting around or something. It was like, it came out, the, the, the president at the time, Abel Pacheco, said, you know, even if we lo- lose this lawsuit, it won't be nearly the price of losing the environment. Then this new president came through and he tried to like savvy this gold mine called Crucitas and it was brought to the attention. A lot of people rebelled against that and he got to the Supreme Court, but then somehow he used his clout to like get it passed again. But then more people lifted up and got it again brought up to the Supreme Court and and he was like he declared it national priority and then the second time it was analyzed by the Supreme Court, that it met none of the national priority standards, and the mine was never given the green light, and they never did that gold mine. They've shut down like attempts to do um, like these mining operations there. So I think it's fascinating. There's a country, 24% of its you know of its territory is in conservation, and there's uh they're very uh you know it's it's still planet Earth. There's problems there, you know, but it's uh. In our area, it's remarkable there's just an innate sense of conservation ethic that the local people have, which is rare for remote areas in the tropics. Most regions of the tropics that are remote, Um, there's a lot of, like, you know, the people might be the nicest people, like in Ecuador and the Amazon, the natives are amazing, beautiful people, but they live off the hunting. There's a lot of hunting going on. A lot of that's indiscriminate in some regards, you know, like uh, I've witnessed, you know, incredible, like, um, insanely, you know, like hunting sessions of like where I've seen over 30 monkeys get hunted out. And so, like, the indigenous people believe that, you know, they don't believe in extinction. They believe that, you know, animals, that there's mythic beads inside the earth that can open and close the doors to these alternate dimensions that they bring the animals in and they bring them out. And yeah, that was also maneuvering of the shamans. I talk about that in my book, the Yahid drinkers. But now there's, you know, no Yahid drinkers that can have those contact with the owners of the animals that can have them release animals out, you know, and or bring them back in. And so, but, uh so it's, it's, it's refreshing to to see a remote area like, you know, the spot with the local people, you know, they, they're happy with the rice and beans and they grow chickens and raise pigs and. There's a lot of respect for nature and for wildlife. And to see animals, happy monkeys everywhere swinging from the trees, is just like, it's really amazing. I had these Taoist masters come. They came and sat in our lodge and they, they shared with us yeah, very profound information about the, the spiritual quality of that land and that it really is like a heaven. And um, you know, um, There's still a lot of work needed to protect that area. We have a marine turtle conservation project that we've been doing 13 years in a row now. As I'm here speaking with you, we have a team of three biologists that we've contracted. That we have a, uh, an agreement with a local foundation called the Cordovalo Foundation, and we have we give them the, the the space, and the foundation hires the biologists. and We have volunteers. There's a whole group of volunteers, and we have about 100 nests protected in the hatchery. We have a an environmental education program with our local school going on as well now too as well, and uh, just to continue. With that, that same direction, because there's been some recent developments, like the first 15 years I was out there, we had only solar system, there was no road, but the road finally came down three years ago, and we have electricity on our beach now, and so it's a really important time to focus, you know, basically sustainability measures, environmental education, do what we can, you know, add our drop of of water to that movement of helping keep the planet, you know, wild and beautiful.
0: But what what you're telling us, of course, Jonathan, is that it really is possible for us humans to live in in cooperation and harmony with nature if we uh, really want to, you know, pay the price and put our minds to it.
1: In that regards Costa Rica is unique.
0: Yeah, I've you know I, I've had a number of friends that uh, have visited Costa Rica, and uh, my wife and I have a, uh, are good friends with a family who moved there maybe 15 years ago now. And, uh, they moved up into central Costa Rica, started an organic farm, and then have, uh, uh, helped pay for all of the, all of their neighbors are organic all around them now. And they're, they're helping to build a school and sustain. They became part of the community, not just, uh, tourists. But I, I have also talked to, uh, you know, I guess surfer tourists, you'd call them, <laughs> who you know, five, six months at a the time there. And, uh, as from what I hear, it's, uh, it's one of the most, uh, pristine, beautiful places Full of beautiful, wonderful people that uh, you can find around here,
1: yeah, for sure. Just uh, last week, the Cocos Island National Park, which is part of Costa Rica, they got a new nomination as a blue park and uh, i can 't remember there's a, like a group of scientists that that you know give those certifications to to countries that are really protecting like legitimately protecting their areas and so that was cool Cocos Island is part of Costa Rica, too Ecuador and Costa Rica are neighbors from the interoceanic waters between the Cocos Island and the Galapagos Island. And Ecuador, you know, Costa Rica is a really important model, role model for Ecuador because it's a country based on non-extractivist model. And uh, one of the projects that I've been involved with too, that's what we go nurturing is this brotherhood between Ecuador and Costa Rica. And I'm close friends with a high-level official in the national park system there, Don Miguel Madrigal. He's a beautiful man who really loves Ecuador, really loves the biodiversity. And we've brought many park rangers to Ecuador, and we've brought many people from Ecuador to Costa Rica over the past 20 years. We've been doing a lot of uh, every year a few trips for intercultural exchange. To uh, you know, we're trying to bring different officials from Ecuador to see the Costa Rican model too, as well of not only like you know the way they protect national parks. But just a lot of other aspects of their, you know, development model that is uh, much more well thought through. Costa Rica had the advantage; of a lot of people, like you know, got educations there and went on to study. And there's a lot of national love for their country, and they were just like, dude, this is the only. There's like an organization called Co- Costa Rica para siempre, Costa Rica forever. People really want to keep their country the way they know it to be, which is how they love it.
0: You know, something I've noticed about uh, people from Costa Rica who I've uh, run into and talked with is uh, you, you were just talking about love of country. And and while they have that, it seems to me that uh, the first thing they talk about, of course, is the land. And to them, their country and the land are one and the same. And that's, that's uh, not the way it is here in the States, I don't think.
1: We have to make that identification. The country is right. not just a barren piece of land to take advantage of. We have to learn how to live with the earth. And with all the species that are there, and that's our responsibility for all human beings. And it's a beautiful.
0: You know, way. you you mentioned how in some of the uh, more remote indigenous areas, the uh, the old ways and beliefs, of particularly say about animals and sustainability and the environment, are the a lot of the older uh, beliefs are in place. What is the the situation with the young people in those areas? Uh, do they have like cell phone connectivity or are they learning more about the outside than their uh, elders have
1: Well, actually, the really old ways were very, very wise in the way they do how to manage and protect the forest. Then shotguns came around and dynamite from the oil companies, and people used dynamite to fish in the mm. rivers and just like so the younger generations have kind of lost it but there's a, there is a process of. And a lot of the indigenous communities in Ecuador, in the, in the remote Amazon regions, they think that, like you know, they live marginal lives, not that much hunting. They think like the oil companies, you know, are, is going to bring them a better life. They don't, you know, like, and so have, a lot of them have sold out to the companies. They don't know how to deal with the kind of pressure. It's a challenging time, but there's a growing cultural revalidation movement, and uh, yeah, you know, like Facebook and social media has allowed for these like social, you know, movements to occur. And there's a very strong movement in cultural revalidation as well. And uh it's, so it's also, there's a lot of uh, an inspiring time that's that's moving through indigenous communities. They're seeing now, they have enough experience with the outside world that they're realizing that their culture is way more, you know, exciting, you know, like basically, you know, and uh gratifying too, to learn about and uphold. And they can see that they can do both. So there's a merging, you know, like that's like, that's you know, the hybrid culture, like, you know, and like uh, Helena Norberg hodge her beautiful book about Ladakh, ancient futures, you know, that we see that happening now, like in that regards, like all over the world, like, you know, there's a, a recollecting of the best of the ancient right. and gathering with the best of the futuristic too, to bring it into a, something that's going to allow us to, to live in harmony, to allow us to achieve sustainability, ability, you know.
0: And, and with some of the the uh, immersive virtual reality technology that's uh, around, the the young people in in uh, in the Amazon can actually create environments that uh, we here up north can can enter and, and see their issues, or problems, and and maybe uh, contribute in some way to uh, help them uh, restore their their culture, et cetera. Uh, so I think I think that uh, while you know we. The technology of guns and dynamite was not beneficial. Perhaps we can make up for it some with the technology of communication and and education this way.
1: For sure. Uh,
0: How about anybody else? Any other questions here?
1: Well, uh, I I have a question. Go ahead, Matthew. So um, how do you respond to the idea that countries like Costa Rica are able to live in a more green or uh, harmonious with the earth kind of lifestyle because of countries like let's say China or places like um, West Virginia that are very industrial and that you know there's like a demand I guess for organic farming in the United States or organic plants that
0: um, Costa Rica can ship out but Costa Rica still has to
1: or, or, you know, the, these um, more organic places in the world still have to, um, like, they st- they're still the backbone of industry that supports them. It's just someplace else, like a not in my backyard sort of idea, I guess. Well, you know, you know Costa Rica has a lot of problems, too. And it has a lot of chemical use in agriculture. There are people that are, you know, there is a growing organic movement. Um, and it's a challenging time yeah you know basically all in the world like the new education has had to be more moderate, moderate. we have to like reduce re, you know like reduce our consumption every country is different and uh, Costa Rica I think they get their gas from Venezuela mainly but it's extremely expensive gasoline is $6 a gallon there people struggle there's a lot of poverty minimum wage like 600 700 dollars a month there but you know gas is, there's a lot of problems or strikes too all of Latin America is undergoing ext- you know, basically we're testing the system right now, um, and it's you know, to its maximum limit and it's gonna kind of be breaking in different spots and and you know, that's you know, a lot of people at regional levels are trying to see and it's becoming more apparent that governments are gonna solve the problems, it's more on a regional level and we're we're you know, like we're facing extremely complicated and at the same time extremely dynamic, you know, the global Social, political, ecological conundrum is—is it's uh, uh—and every country on Earth, even Costa Rica, has a lot of powers at be that you know, like it's every—it's a kind of checkmate. There's like a lot of amazing things that have been set up there, like that protect, will you know, like wilderness areas and strong environmental ethics. But there's a lot of other problems as well too. Any other questions, sir?
0: Um, I got a question really fast, kind of question comment. Um, But uh, I'm I'm part of a group that's going to be in Costa Rica in June of this coming year. Um, and I know that we're very interested in finding somebody locally, speak to our group about conservation and maybe some philanthropic work that we could do and give back while we're in country. Um, I didn't know if maybe there's a way that I could get in contact with you personally, and maybe open up some communication education around that.
1: Yeah, with much pleasure. We have, you know, we have a permaculture project too. We receive volunteers. There's all kinds of stuff going on in our area. If you want to visit our area or if you're interested in other areas, I could try to give some suggestions too as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's all right. yeah. I think I got it. So oceanforest.org, is that is that what it was? Yeah. Ocean
1: Oceanforest.org
0: and there's a contact link at the top there. Okay, great. That's enough for me. Perfect. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank you in fact what what I did have up there was your your next retreat. Let me uh put that back up and uh you can talk about that a little bit, maybe. Thank you. I don't know if you can see the screen, but there it is uh, and this is set for December eighth through the eighteenth correct correct there we go.
1: yeah this will be a phenomenal ythetical immersion so tell us a little uh, bit about what,
0: what, yeah tell us what's going to take place here.
1: Well, it's a 10-day retreat, and we, uh, we have yoga, daily yoga classes happening with a yoga teacher. Um, we, we explore the forest too, and we go deep into the heart of ethnobotany on this retreat, and we experience healing and renewal ceremonies with sacred ancestral plant medicines. And, uh, we talk a lot about the content of the book, but also just, you know, hike through the forest, visit the old growth primary rainforest, explore the ocean. All activities are optional. People have really beautiful rooms right at our botanical setting, garden setting, and uh, it's a remarkable trip if you want to escape the cold, um, and it's within your budget. Now, how how I'm do down.
0: People, how do people get there from uh, how how close are you to uh, uh, an airport type? Uh,
1: from San Jose, the uh, the international uh, de- destination. Yeah, you can fly on a fifth, 45 minute flight to Drake Bay. But for this retreat, we have everyone go to the Adventure Inn. It's a hotel. And then we take a, a, a microbus, a little minivan down the coast. It's like four hour and a half hour drive um, down the countryside and then an hour boat ride oh, down wow. the Sierra River. Beautiful mangrove. We're out to the ocean. It's just amazingly gorgeous. After an hour boat ride, we arrive on our beach.
0: That, that sounds like a, a phenomenal experience. I hope that uh, afterwards some of uh, the people who take it will let us know. And, Kevin, I hope you guys can hook up while you're down there as well. So, Jonathan, also uh, we're kind of running out of time here a little bit, but tell tell uh, us a little bit about uh, your book, Rainforest Medicine. I see that uh, uh, it, it's been out for a few years, and, and you've spent your lifetime putting this information together. Uh, uh, t- tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, The book was written mainly just from three in the morning until sunrise because it was the only time I had to really, I was able to concentrate on the book. It took about three years to put together. And it's mainly about those 10 years in the Ecuador and Amazon between 1990 and the year 2000. But then it was written in 2013. So basically I, I'd done a lot of trips back and to lift up some of the experiences and harder, you know, revalidate a lot of the information. And it was published by North Atlantic Books and it's, uh, you know, it uh, goes in depth into the sacred plant science of Yahe, and it talks about the Napo Galeras, the biodiversity, the legends related to this mountain. And then there's also a, a chapter on the, um, the herb, maestros, deep forest and urban, about, you know, glimpse into the life of the elders, the torch bearers of these plant medicine traditions. So,
0: so it isn't, isn't exclusively about plants, it's also about the people who use the plants and, and, and how they use them.
1: Correct. It's, it's like a woven tapestry of my, some of my personal experiences, a bioregional phenomena amongst three indigenous groups, at the, you know, and, or four actually, with the, um, the Waurani, the Sequoia, the Quichua, and the Mestizo, people from Peru. And uh, it's about this, uh, the sacred mountain of Napo Galeras and the apocalyptic connotations, the myths related to this mountain, and then about the life of the elders as well.
0: Yeah. And, and what I think, uh, probably makes your book so unique is that it's looking at, uh, the, the rainforest medicine from the perspective of not just a single, uh, cultural sp- perspective, but from a number of different, uh, indigenous people. And, and, uh, to me, that makes it even, uh, more valuable as, uh, not just as a scholarly book, but as something that's just fascinating to read.
1: Right, right. It's a bioregional perspective. Don Casimiro, one of the elders that we speak about in the book, my mentor um, from Napo Galeras, he had his grandfather's song, and one of the lines of the song was, through every town I have walked. And so essentially part of the indigenous heritage was always visiting other indigenous groups as well too to broaden one's perspective. So if the plant medicine is intended to broaden our perspective that's also implied in that, that it's a bioregional perspective. and So we can have a much broader perspective and more, you know, wholesome understanding of what this is. And, and, you
0: know, that sounds so much more powerful that the towns I have walked rather than the towns I have (laughs) visited, because, you know, if some, if you, you've walked, and we've all done this as tourists, even, you know, we've walked through towns and you really do get to know more about a town than just a, Flying into the airport and uh having a coffee at Starbucks or
1: something. <laughs> right.
0: I figured I would just uh jump in real quick and point out a synchronicity, which you know, this show, uh this live experience tends to dig those up. Um my my wife is from Costa Rica and her brother right. actually um he runs Hungla del Jaguar, which is just <laughs> like it's uh maybe a mile south of you yeah. guys on the peninsula.
1: I know those guys are my hobies.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've been going there for 10 years.
1: Oh, cool. Um, yeah, well, that's just right down the beach. We're on the record, Paya you can, you can, We can see each other from across. the yeah. To, yeah. yeah, come by and visit. I'll have to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's and, awesome. Yeah.
0: And Andrew, when you do, you'll definitely have to. We'll have to set it up here for uh, Monday night. Andrew's come to us from Kathmandu and from an airplane. and uh-huh. So uh, we'll continue our travelogue with you, Andrew, when you get down to Costa Rica next time. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you can see here, but this is a picture of... A, this photograph
1: is... Beautiful.
0: ...from uh, the Oso there.
1: Right. Nice. White-faced monkey. Cariblanco, Blanco, white-faced monkey, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an absolutely magical place, um, and I, it doesn't surprise me one bit that you went there and, <laughs> and that that place grabbed you. Yeah. So uh, do you have any uh, final comments you'd like to make?
1: Yeah, you know, the facility The is just a gorgeous center. We're in particular, we're going to reach out to yoga teachers. We have an a Ocean Force retreat kit that outlines all the aspects of running a, a yoga retreat down there if you would like to come and rent the facility or check out our, our programs or join one of the retreats that are happening. In particular, this retreat from the 8th to the 18th, this Rainforest Medicine Council Gathering, is going to be a remarkable experience. It's the most one of the most beautiful times of the year. If uh would love to see any one of you down there. If you have a friend that might be interested, appreciate it Um, very much to share the word about that. Date's coming up. can use a few more people to sign up. And there we are. You know, I really, I didn't know what to expect with this uh, psychedelic salon. And it's uh, really nice to see that you have such a, such a motley crew camaraderie all gathered together here. And and, uh, it's quite a pleasant experience. I really appreciate this time, Lorenzo. And to everyone else, you know, to me over this medium, thank you to the listeners. I, Hope that you've enjoyed this this time.
0: Uh, well, we we I've certainly learned some uh, some things I didn't know about uh, Costa Rica and particularly about Yahé. And uh, I look forward to uh, doing this again sometime, Jonathan. And uh, maybe we'll join uh, you when Andrew comes down <laughs> next time. We'll get the 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 two of you online. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for being here. And until next Monday night, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, that was uh, certainly an interesting synchronicity at the end there when it turned out that one of our fellow saloners had a connection to Jonathan's friend and neighbor. You know, it's uh, really a much smaller world than we sometimes realize. In the live salon tonight... Our guest will be Dr. Thomas Roberts, who is a co-founder of MAPS and of the Council on Spiritual Practices. Tom is also a professor emeritus at Northern Illinois University, and in 1981, he began teaching the world's first university-catalogued psychedelic course. And among other things, we're going to be talking about his soon-to-be-released book, Mind Apps, Multistate Theory and Tools for Mind Design. Maybe I'll see you there. And if all goes well, I'll podcast that conversation here in the salon in a week or so. But for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.